Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Got Northwest Pilsner. Got an extremely hot and sunny day. Got a, a truly delightful film we're going to talk about today, Michael. That we do. I believe it's our the first time in a while we both had five stars. On, on the same movie, yeah. It's been a minute. I'm it, excited. It has. Um, so I don't know if you know this, but I was looking up like film history and facts. Mm-hmm. And Park Chan-wook actually invented the term misen-scene within the film, The Handmaiden. It, in fact, did not exist before his creation of this film. I believe that. And Guy Ritchie went back in time and began making his films after being influenced by the twists in this film. I think that's carved in stone somewhere, right? Yeah, that's that's true film fact. I believe it. <laughs> and we'll dive in. I am. Uh, th- this is a movie that I've loved passionately and shared with people um, before we started the show, um, before I considered myself a uh, uh, Anywhere near a cinephile that had any idea what was going on. This was just one of those ones that was, I have to share this with everybody that's willing to sit down and watch it. Where, where does uh, The Handmaiden kind of place for you? Similar story. Uh, I saw this one in a festival setting where it was actually like the wild card for me. Um, I went into the festival also with plans to see Manchester by the Sea in Moonlight. It was already oh, that's completely a good festival. It was a very good festival. I was already completely aware of the rave reviews those films were getting. I wasn't as familiar with uh, Park Chan Wook at the time. I think I had seen Old Boy, but I hadn't really gotten familiar with him as a director at all. I was com- completely blown away by this movie, and uh, yeah, and, and had was psyched to revisit it. Well, before we continue. Um giddily down the road of discussing the handmaiden let's do our first impressions of our next rescreening title which is michael by the sea directed by angelina jolie correct Michael, we just saw the trailer for Angelina Jolie's By the Sea. What are your initial impressions? 
Well, I should say that this will be the first film that we're doing a deep dive on that I haven't actually seen before. Um, so this will be a different experience for sure. Um, I also don't think I've seen any of Angelina Jolie's films. She's probably directed like three or four now, I want to mm-hmm. say. Um, so I am kind of going in blind. Um, while you were getting the trailer queued up, you mentioned Eric Romare. Um, Antonioni kind of came to mind for me in that it looks like it's about, you know, ennui among the upper class. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, well, I setting him, especially for Antonioni. For sure. Um, yeah, I, 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 I like both these uh, actors and yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what she's got. Tell me about your relationship with this film since this was your pick. Um, well, whatever year it came out, I was still, you know, a budding cinephile. And basically it was a universally panned film that I fell in love with and didn't understand people's dislike for. Um, and that still continues to this day. I, I remember this film with the same amount of fondness that I have for a film like La Ventura. Um, to me, I, I think of Romare and Antonioni specifically as influences for her in this. She's very much, you know, the statuesque fallen figure kind of playing big emotions, um, not unlike Catherine Hepburn near the end of Catherine's career. And I just really get drawn to this type of uh, melodramatic ennui. You know, I um, this is just one of those ones that has a special place in my heart and is kind of larger than life because it is about this couple that is very much in the eye of culture and it's kind of a private film about the emotions of that and rather than a culture that was obsessed with this couple coming together for this film it was kind of critically panned and um i genuinely don't understand why yeah i don't recall the like the specific reactions to it i remember that it wasn't terribly well received i kind of wonder if it was perceived as a vanity project you know just in the sense that it's an actress taking her success and and leveraging that to make her own movie, which I think would be, I'm sort of, you know, doing a straw man argument here. I think that would be kind of a gendered response. I feel like we see actors and men do that all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would not at all hold that against her. Um, That's just a wild guess. But the thing about the content of the film is it's not a vanity thing. Mm. It's a deeply sincere emotional thing. Um, And that's, that's to me where vanity goes at. When something's really personal really emotional and really sincere i tend to take vanity out the window like it's Mm. it's just not there in projects that are sincere even if they flop if your heart was on your sleeves when you were trying to make it i.e david ayers the tax collector he clearly Mm. was very passionate about making it i just didn't like the movie at all um but i i don't think that that was a vanity project for him i don't think this is a vanity project for angelina julia yeah cool should be fun. Are you lukewarm too excited to watch it? Yeah, I actually think it looks cool. I guess I'm just like trying to be cautious because it was so negatively received. But uh, at first glance, I am uh, hopeful. I'm thrilled that you're hopeful. 
Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. We recently joined as members, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. On to one of the greatest films made in the last decade. back on track talking about the film that invented mise en scene the film that invented twists reversals um and the destruction of books and libraries apparently that's right it is uh 2016's the handmaiden by park chan wook um it's an adaptation of the novel fingersmith by the british novelist sarah waters mm-hmm. um which is, as you described, kind of a twisty, erotic thriller uh, that Park Jin Wook takes the events of and moves to um, 1930s South Korea during the Japanese occupation of Korea. Um, yeah, I think I saw this. Yeah, I saw this in 2016. You saw it around the release date. I yeah, it was 2016 for sure. I think it was the end though. First time revisiting it. Uh, was for this episode? No, no, I, I've shared it with a few people. Um, most recently, I remember watching it with, um, my cousin-in-law down in Portland. I had convinced him over a few beers that, like, there's this movie that I can't believe you haven't seen. It's free right now on Prime. It's literally one of the best movies that came out in the last 10 years. I know you don't watch movies often, but this is one of the ones you have to watch. And he was enthralled. Sold him on it. Oh, just watching it. it, Like, I I was like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And he's like, don't pause it. You know, like, he was enthralled. (laughs) Love it. Um, Plot is difficult to summarize because it's such an intricately plotted movie. Mm -hmm. And it is a very plot-focused movie. But just to maybe really concisely or briefly uh, lay the groundwork, it's um, set in 1930s Korea where a con man and woman... um, Devise a scheme to a steal grift. a grift. That's right. To steal the inheritance of a wealthy woman who lives uh, alone with her uncle, a rather shadowy kind of mysterious figure for the first part of the movie. Um, and as they carry out the scheme, um, emotions complicate the plan and they realize not all is as it seems behind certain rooms in this mansion where most of the movie is set. 
Um, where do you want to begin? Oh, that's a a lovely thing to ask me. Uh, I would have to begin, I guess, in just talking in general about, have you ever read Fingersmith? No, I have have not. Have you ever seen Sally Hawkins' Fingersmith from the uh, mid-2000s, I think? No, I didn't realize she was in that, but now now I am intrigued. Yeah, yeah, me, me as well. I tried to do some research. Um, so before we talk about this, just to establish kind of Park Chan-wook, you watched Thirst um, before revisiting this. And ha- had you seen anything besides Old Boy preceding that? Seen Old Boy. I saw Stoker quite a while right. ago and The Little Drummer Girl, yeah. the miniseries. Yeah, the, the Little Drummer Girl kind of has a little bit of time um, play to it. Not too much, though, mm-hmm. in comparison um stoker really is just very much a procedural um that kind of Mm -hmm. starts with you know alluding to the end but doesn't really um do time manipulation in this way old boy is a little bit different also obsessed with time i'm a cyborg but that's okay is not at all time dependent um which is a film that i recently saw and then i saw lady vengeance which also is playing with time in this way Mm. i think it's safe to say park chan wook is really drawn to things with manipulations of time Mm. and i think he's at his best when he's either not doing that or when the work that precedes him is excellent Mm. because the the screenplays that he's written on his own that kind of do the time jump twist thing mm. um they, they just don't hit anywhere near this level of execution and i say that and then i think about the little drummer girl which i think we're both kind of like that was a swing and a miss with a bunch of talent mm. um, yeah I, I don't know what it is but th- this is just one of those films where everything came together um and i i would point toward every level of filmmaking to be what makes this swoon and, and swell and grip the viewer in a way that is kind of an uncomparable. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, just to run with that idea of how he's uh, having fun with uh, the timeline here, I feel like that really works through this kind of combination of the scripting and the editing. You know, it's divided in three parts, and we double back on uh, this story multiple times to see things through different characters' perspectives um, and just how fluidly it makes those jumps and still seems to carry so much kind of forward momentum is is just awesome um and you know that that's partly scripting that's partly just how um captivating each cut back to um an earlier time period to see things differently again and how exciting that is um it's really cool um yeah um hard to think about too many movies that that pull that off quite as successfully as this does yeah, I would agree. You're talking about kind of propulsiveness, even though you're going back in time. Mm. And that is really rare. As much as I am very much what I would call like a Guy Ritchie, just in general fan, like I just kind of like mm. his movies to relax to. Um, mm. it, they're not something that I think are necessarily like, you know, that the pinnacle of cinema or anything like that, but they're just a mm. good time. Um mm-hmm. And he he does these time jump signatures as well, but there's they kind of lose propulsiveness. Mm. And the weird thing here is it's just stacking and stacking and stacking and stacking. And 
it's kind of like getting all these teacups balanced on mm-hmm. top of each other on a table. And you can't believe that the teacups not only go all the way up to the ceiling, they turn sideways and go back down to the table, mm-hmm. making like a perfect arch. Mm-hmm. That That's a great metaphor. I love that because there it's a movie with so many, you know, uh, dialogue details and references that sort of... Um, call back to earlier parts of the movie so just to run with that metaphor you know it's like a very carefully constructed teacup tower where certain cups kind of resemble each other or remind you of one other cup in Mm -hmm. that same tower um so yeah good choice of metaphor thank you i i appreciate that um talking about the library a little bit um i just find that that whole denizen that whole area just so imprintable on my memory like just thinking about being her starting from that young age on that floor seeing the beautiful garden in some of the tiles that are pulled up knowing Mm. that one of those tiles hides a door to hell um Mm. that like that is one of the most intriguing libraries, not only, you know, in cinema, but I think in storytelling that I can think of where there's all these elements. There's not only men looking at her, expecting her to sexually fulfill them Mm. um, by telling these stories, but there's, there's pain and there's also beauty within Mm. these walls and kind of trying to grapple with that as a viewer and, and, catching yourself thinking how beautiful this place is, even though it's torture. Mm. Um, I, I find that really rich. Yeah. Uh, I think the very first time we enter that room, it's through the handmaidens, Suki's mm-hmm. eyes. Um, and that's the shot that's, I think in the trailer where the camera is like flying down that walkway towards the main yes. part of the room. Um, which uh, it reminded something about just how quickly we enter that room, which feels very, different from how so many american thrillers would prefer to usually creep us into a big kind of space an important space um i don't know why that reminded me a little bit of um parasite when we first go down into the basement and that camera is like careening down the corner oh, yeah. as you know the lady is looking for her husband or mm-hmm. who we realizes her yeah, husband down there. Yeah, down there to, to yeah. get him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, something about wait, these uh, camera movements just force us into these spaces, like whether we want to go in here or not, we're coming in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of like maybe there's something to like Korean um, like horror, quote unquote, cinema or, or thriller cinema where th- the theme is kind of to get you to reach your whole hand through a wall to a room of cookies and then take a switch and just hit your hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or it just grabs your hand. And it's like, Oh, if you want to come in here, you're coming in. Yeah. Yeah. But not, not only did you come in, but the pain is here. Mm-hmm. And so is the cookies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, memorable scenes. I think the, maybe even before we get that shot of the camera, you know, flying down that walkway, there's, during one of the blackouts, you just get a couple like flickering shots of Hideko reading from a book when she's in that room, but you don't really know yet what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just so perfectly suspenseful and mysterious. I love those shots because yeah, you don't you don't you don't know what's going on yet at that point. Yeah, I I didn't get to have that experience because I still deeply remember this. Um, yeah, yeah. 
for me, it was more about when are things going to happen. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I haven't forgotten the procedure of this film. And I think that's the beauty of it. If you get to watch it for the first time, or if you get to watch it and have totally forgotten what's going to happen, mm-hmm. that's the best. But when you know what's going to happen and you're just waiting kind of for like those time signatures to drop, like in a song, like wh- mm-hmm. when does the beat drop? When does the the symphony coming in the background. Um, it's still a beautiful work of art, just like listening to a song like that, but it's less thrilling, but somehow mm-hmm. of this film in particular manages to be just as engaging, which mm-hmm. is something that a lot of films that require twists and big reveals lose instantaneously after the first watch. Yeah. Uh, I, I had dropped my rating slightly when I first rewatched it. And then, took it back up again on my subsequent watch only because th- there is just never going to be, you know, a watch that is like your first time with a movie like this. And I, you know, it's, it's tempting to want to find, you know, new depths to, you know, a movie on each viewing and arguably maybe you, you can do that here. Um, but I don't want to hold, you know, the fact that the first time is always going to be the best one with a movie like this. Um, yeah, as long as you're okay. awake for the whole movie, the first time's always going to be the best time with this specific movie. Mm-hmm. Um, on subsequent re- rewatches, you might pick up on things that you weren't smart enough to pick up on the first time. I remember doing that my first couple viewings. Uh, but this time around, it was really just appreciating the art of the cinema, of the lighting crew, of the set decorators. My goodness, the talent oh, on yeah. display there. And then... About halfway through, I just kind of sat there in subtle awe of of the acting. Like, mm-hmm. it's just pitch perfect. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. It's just never not perfect, which is what throws off your ability to appreciate it, because every single thing is perfect. And then you get to a scene near the end where one of them is dressed up with the mustache, right? Mm-hmm. And they're at the window with the ticket taker. And you're like, this guy's perfect too. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, especially the, the two women. I guess this is this really feels like there are four characters. The two women plus the uncle and the other con man. There, but like, there's two heroes and there's two villains. Uh, yeah. I think that that's a perfect characterization. Um but but the women in particular each kind of have to play like they're two different characters because they each kind of take turns playing the the ingenue the mm-hmm. the, the naive uh, person in this. Um, I was about to say triangle. It's really more of a square of four characters um, who. Well, the uh, first I'd, I'd say two thirds of the film is a triangle. True, and then we realize the uh, uncle's hobby. Yeah, yeah. but I mean like. Just think about the introduction of the film. If you're brand new to it and you see this woman losing a baby that's crying, soaked mm. in the rain, you think this movie's totally different than what this movie is. You think she's the mother and like all this. Oh, oh yeah. Just um, the premise is so fantastic. I must read Fingersmith. I am very interested in the novel. Um, there's a line when... Hideko is showing the handmaiden kind of her wardrobe and her shoes and stuff like that. And, she, and the handmaiden's like in awe of how many shoes are in her closet. And she says something like, um, in new shoes, even a well-trodden path 
feels fresh or something mm-hmm. like that, which I think kind of applies to the movie for me in that oh, yeah. we double back multiple times to see things through um, new eyes and our perceptions of these characters keep getting reframed at first. Um, so he is the uh, person doing the seducing of Hideko and then that's subsequently reversed and then it it only goes um in a new direction in the third chapter um yeah just it's just so intricately scripted it's awesome i i think that that line obviously is there on purpose but that's a great point because i didn't i didn't pick up on that that's exactly what this is it's it's watching one scene where she comes in to be the handmaiden and um she she kind of opens the door when she's alone to to peek in on on her mistress and then you hear this boom and she goes and hides and you're kind of like i wonder if this is like a kind of a a different type of scary movie you Mm -hmm. you know and then about five to six eighths of the way in you see it from the other perspective where it's just a doll head being smacked against a door (laughs) so good yeah uh and there's there's so many little lines like that that I just find so satisfying. There's one where I think it's in voiceover narration that Suki says something like, um, mistresses really are like dolls that we get to play dress up with yes. or something like that. Um, and when she's in the bathtub scene says something about her like being like a baby and she's going to take care of this baby and this this idea of characters manipulating each other thinking they are in control of the situation when they very much are not. Um, very satisfying on rewatch when you know where it this is. is going. It is. I, I think the most gratifying thing in my first watch was learning what the purpose of him smoking three cigarettes in the carriage was. Oh, yeah, yeah. But honestly, on subsequent rewatches, that doesn't that's like the one thing that I think might be not as strong as it should have been. That specific detail? Well, the that ending. That whole ending there. Like, I mm. think there just wasn't quite the punch that there there was on the first... On the first viewing, that is an incredible sequence in which you don't know what's going to happen. And not only does he successfully commit suicide, he mm. kills his tormentor. Um, so the villain kills the other villain. And that's that's great on a first watch. But um I and I don't really have any constructive criticism or anything, but I, I do find myself finding that to be like the weakest of the plot points on on revisit here is it just doesn't quite have the panache or the propulsiveness that all these other moments in the film do. Like I am much more intrigued to talk to you about the bathtub scene and the mm. the play between the different timelines of who's manipulating who than i am to talk about that big finale death yeah i would agree uh so much of this movie is about each of these women having to deal with the two dudes who who die in the final scene i don't know that it's that satisfying of a way to see them go right uh, like wouldn't you just, rather watch the octopus strangle them both I remember that on even first watch thinking, I thought there would be a little bit more in this dungeon. Not that it's not gross and very twisted, but uh, I do remember thinking just that, that 
Simplistic. There might be something happening with the octopus that doesn't really happen. It, I think that's just like a callback to Old Boy. Wasn't there an octopus in Old Boy? Well, there's that, an octopus in Old Boy, but then within the the erotica that is kind of the theme there see that is the, the tentacle stuff. Right, right. Yeah, which, you know, that's a Japan thing in the foreign invasion. I'm sure there's like a, there's something more subtle there that I'm not aware of happening perhaps, but mm-hmm. um, I would have. I would have just rather watched the octopus strangle them or like different machines of torture getting reversed and them both like him dying from his injuries, but getting the kill before he bled to death or, or something. The, the cigarette was just kind of um, less enthralled. Like it's a very fun reveal the first viewing, but it's, it's not at the same level of staggering, you know, tallest peak of pinnacle of greatness, like all these mm-hmm. other scenes are. Yeah, it's a weird thing to say about this movie, but yeah, when you're watching the like his fingers get chopped off, you're thinking this actually is tamer than I thought. Right, <laughs> like it. It was one of the most tame scenes in the film because it's not showing them get cut off either. Yeah, it's yeah, just you're a right. sound, mm-hmm. and then a prop, and they never show you the stumps or anything. So it, it's very much avoiding the the visceral. You know, things that you would normally be concerned for in a, a body, bodily horror type yeah. of Yeah, interesting piece. place to finally exercise some restraint in right? a way. Is, yeah, fair point. And I think that the nature of the film leading up to that kind of begat a larger payoff of pain for these two mm. individuals as well. Um, so, it, I mean, you know really really down on this perfect movie by criticizing Mm. its finale death of the villains Mm. but if i had the point to the singular weak spot that is it yeah that's fair um yeah just to to run with that idea of of pain and the objects that really symbolize that we see at the start of part two the young hideko getting you know whacked with the the balls, mm-hmm. uh, those steel balls on a rope, which feel very much, uh, they, they, they seem to very much resemble the Bells of Passion that we finished the oh, movie Oh, directly. With, right? Um, and, yeah, I do like that idea Well, before of those, the Bells of Passion uh, are introduced, they're erotic. Yeah, looking, yeah. So, period. Absolutely. Um, I, I guess I was just hedging my bets as I walked into that comment, but I like the idea of those of that particular object being, you know, um, reappropriated for the purpose of pleasure after having been used for so much pain. Um, yes. That is a satisfying twist. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's kind of something that's subtly on display here. There's definitely, um, I I don't know. V- personally much about Park Chan-wook, which is something I, I do regret. Like, I didn't study up on his autobiography or anything like that. But from what I googled, there just wasn't um, a vast amount of resources in the English language mm. um, to begin with. But I, I do think that in this film particularly, he is playing with what we in English commonly refer to as the male and female gaze. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the um, the reversal of these scenes because mm. we are seeing kind of the, the first third, I'd argue, we're seeing a female gaze that's presented through like what, what a man told her is true. Mm-hmm. And then things begin to shift into a, an all female gaze. And mm-hmm. um, I, I think that that 
just like the bells that you're referencing and the initial thing that he's beat with are those those extra textual things um, that that have a, a greater depth to the film than just what's on the surface. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my favorite little formal touches that kind of relates to just that that idea of the gaze that is very present throughout is so much of the camera is very fluid and kind of elaborate in its movement but there are those really brief moments where it'll switch to handheld usually like for a pov shot like it's just kind of been popped off the stabilizer or a you know a steady mm-hmm. cam or something like that and like when she's um, running to the princess after she gets the oils yeah or you, you know scenes where they first see or each other lady, um, <laughs> yeah but just the, that evocation of the dizziness of that feeling like you've been knocked back on your heels when you're when you're attracted to someone is is just perfect and then the, and then the camera restabilizes again because people get back into character um but i think that's just a, such a nice way of uh getting at that kind of lightheadedness that you feel when you're really knocked out knocked out by the look of somebody yeah that's that's exactly what i was experiencing but didn't really put my finger on that's that's an astute point yeah um i also think about the what I term as kind of the the crucial middle period, which is begun when they ascend on that that perfectly um, tripod balanced shot where they go up the stairs in their getaway. Oh, you know the, yeah. the beautiful stone steps, and you get this close up on the feet on the steps, and they've ascended this thing, and so the visual cinematographic language is telling you that they've reached this pinnacle things are going to change now and things do change but not at all in the way that you've been visually primed for and that is just one of those flourishes of filmmaking that i i think i haven't really seen other places where he just knows exactly what he's presenting via mise scene in a way that um is kind of precocious. Like he's, he's kind of ballsy, you know, oh, like yeah. he's setting you up this whole time. And then he's just going to give you this really simplistic shot, um, of going up. And then he's going to introduce this person who's watching everything. And then he's going to have these walls where you can see the shadows. And you're going to assume on this first viewing of this pinnacle that you're seeing reality for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you're not at all right. Yeah, and even just, you know, the idea that, like, we kind of associate positive thoughts or ideas with ascension, with upward movement, you know, mm-hmm. that it just evokes transcendence and, and improvement. And Not that to mention the nature in the background yeah. of these steps that, that is also amplifying exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And the first time you see it, yeah, uh, yeah, they arrive and they get married and Saki is promptly thrown into a hospital, so... That did not pan out. <laughs> or did it? Or did it, right. Um, yeah, there's... This is simultaneously a film that you could never stop talking about, but also a film that is incredibly difficult to define the parameters of which portion of the film you were talking about in Eventon. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that happens near the end that, um, you know, if you've listened this far and you still haven't seen it, stop go watch it what i'm going to talk about is my personal favorite scene um which is when we see a shot earlier and then we see the actual finale very 
close to the end, I'd say seven eighths um, away from the ending or into the film rather. And that is when um, Lady Hideko asks her what she would do. Would she marry him if she was in love with someone else? Mm -hmm. And she says, yes. And the first time we see that, we don't really see the outcome of of Mm -hmm. that interaction. We just see her storming off. The second time, seven eighths of the way through this movie, we have one of the most beautiful tragedy filled moments within cinema and in this film in which she has thrown the rope just like her aunt was killed over the same tree, over the same branch, and she's going to hang herself. And she falls, and right when she's supposed to get her neck cinched, right underneath her is the handmaiden, crying, asking her not to. And then it turns into a comedy. Mm -hmm. So swiftly does it go from one of the saddest, melodramatic, tragedy things in a screenplay into her realizing that um, the lady's known who she is the whole time and her throwing a tantrum, leaving the lady to strangle (laughs) after she's decided she doesn't want to die anymore. And the perfect tone build to that, the, the build during the entire movie of the tree, of that rope in the box, it's just one of my favorite moments of transversing those those masks of writing going from tragedy to comedy yeah yeah i feel like that's maybe the best scenes that kind of encapsulates what feels to me like a uniquely korean sensibility which is just kind of that mixture of seemingly contradictory tones um you already mentioned like how there are moments that feel like something from a horror movie particularly early on where i think Hideko says something like, I still see my ghost, or the ghost of my aunt hanging from the tree sometimes. Um, And just, you know, how quickly this will move. And the doll on the pillow? Yeah, yeah, very creepy. And like the Uh, lights being introduced as going in and out, um, running into the library, like you mentioned, like that introduction to the library is kind of scary just visually, like you're cued to be scared. But then the snake marking the boundary mm-hmm. line, the doors slamming shut in front of her. Those are all things that kind of, you know, set you up to watch, if not a horror film, a dark thriller. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, if you describe to someone an American film as an erotic thriller, I think you have a very distinct kind of tone that comes to mind. Brian De Palma? <laughs> yes, which doesn't, I mean, maybe maybe there are some funny moments in his movies, but I, but I don't feel like you get this same openness to different tones, ranging from horror to comedy to um, the erotic and the horrific. You know, that's all here, and I think yeah. that's, that's part of just the greatness of the filmmaking, is that they all um, cohere rather than clash. I, I agree. There's a different type of a, a smirk in South Korean cinema so far from what I've seen that has this type of thing in it. Whether we're talking about Bong Joon-ho's films, whether it is Parasite, or if it's Snowpiercer. There's there's similar levels of dread in, in smirking through the fourth wall at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I think about some of the films that, that do, if not go through the fourth wall, are kind of smirking at the audience... None of them are this um, 
formally accomplished along the way to mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. Like if if they do it, it's on on the back of some very um, mediocre story or mediocre cinema. It's never mm-hmm. expert level cinema, expert level storytelling, giving you a smirk that you barely clue into. Mm-hmm. So there is something different about how Koreans are communicating their their visual medium right now. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you just think about your 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 big scale American auteurs. Like I don't know why Fincher just comes to mind when I think about movies like mm-hmm. this. You know that are gonna th- that are operating at a certain scale for thrills. Thriller, maybe. Yeah, and you know there's there's maybe black comedy to be found in Gone Girl, but the but the tone is not as overtly kind of diverse in all the beats that it hits as this. Um, no, it, it's, I mean, it's Gone Girl is great, but it's mm-hmm. ultra simplistic. It's a fluffy mm-hmm. pen writing a diary entry being thrown out a window. It's not this intricate. Like, I, I mm-hmm. can't begin to talk. Th- this is comparing lace to just a, like a blanket, just a cheap blanket that you bought at Target. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that cheap blanket is very comfortable and it's great. But the lace, there's something about it. Yeah, uh, just the ornateness of the the detail in the production here is is kind of next level. I, I mean, can you think of other films um, that are kind of comparable to to this ornateness? Um, not off the top of my head, really. Like this is kind of the the pinnacle of of that kind of baroque style that that that, that I really like um when i think about like period pieces set dressing and just kind of limit it to that like the the only thing that really comes to mind is peter ware's um master and commander Mm, yeah you know like that that not only is so broad and narrow in scope but the like the lighting was just perfect from my memory the whole time the performances are excellent it's a very different film but as a period piece it it definitely felt wholly of itself um, in a way that isn't quite as ornate or decorative, but is comparable. But it's very few films that are not only period pieces, but that are this um, devouring of of craft and exemplary of, of presenting the narrative through the film, where it, it's not that the story is this and the filmmaking is that. It's that the, the story and the filmmaking are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that is incredibly rare. Yeah. Um, and like on top of it being ornate, it's, it's just so culturally specific too. like the detail of what's Japanese, what's Korean is, is all very intentional. Um, and over my head. Yeah, for sure. Um, when I look at the uncle and this is just a wild guess, like I'm just not equipped to really guess this, but just his look, his, his, his eyebrows, his hair, the things he's wearing just looks even more over the top to me than anything else in the movie. Oh, it movie. looks extremely fake, doesn't it? Right, which... Garish, kind of? 100%, and I almost, like, was maybe a little turned off by it. Not that we're supposed to like him, obviously, but I don't know that, like, at first I initially really cared for how kind of obviously kind of, like, reptilian he looked mm-hmm. um, until I thought maybe he is deliberately trying to look Japanese in some way. Um, I don't know that like I can spe- I can point to like specifics that are that look more Japanese and Korean, but that was that was my guess as to why he's so obviously 
kind of phony in his look somehow. Um, well, he's I trying think, to be something he's not. I, I would completely agree with that. And I think that there's a, a quote within the film near the end where he's talking about how he had saved up for a month to buy this suit mm. so that he could go to their restaurant. Mm. And instead of mocking him, these people who recognized him from the whorehouse um, began like helping him learn the language. Mm. And I, I think there's something, you know, very specific about that in relation to it, where it's not only do they know you put on false clothes, but they like that you did. Mm-hmm. And you're you're feeding the system that they already have superiority in in a way that they find rewarding. So they want you to continue. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just find that, that that desire to be Japanese just so fits with how I conceive of this character who seems so insecure in, in one way and, and very perhaps egotistical in another. And the thought of just being a member of the country being colonized is just something he cannot stand and therefore has to jump teams. He can't bear the thought of being the oppressed nation here. Um, just just totally fits with the sliminess of this character. Yeah, not to mention the other sliminess that he exhibits about like his sexual uh, that too. specificities. That too. Uh, we won't get into that mm-hmm. in detail, though, because that's, uh, that's outside the purview uh, of the episode. Um, it's on our, like, maybe bonus edition someday. Maybe. Let's just <laughs> suffice to say he's fucked up. Um, and pathetic. And leave it at that. Um, is there is there anything that we haven't gotten into on the filmmaking side of it that, that you were really struck by? Uh, well, I was actually curious just to see how you responded to this as a colorblind viewer, because I do think the color is part of what makes this just such a sumptuous viewing experience. Um, Sure. So, I mean, I can't speak to how great it could be, but I can tell you how great it is to me and the lighting specifically. Like this is one of the best lit foreign films outside of um, Cold War that I've probably ever seen. Um, I really like the, Christian Petzold film that we watched last year, Transit. Mm. Um, it, it had some very cool reflective surfaces using kind of dazzling lights um, onto, you know, just normal surfaces. Um, the candlelight, um, I believe, on the table in the restaurant was very interesting in that film. But the sumptuousness of the lighting in the corners here to... You, you know, reveal the ornateness on the walls, but also center your attention directly to the perfect place, you know, like, like just it, it, it is gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. Seeing color has nothing to do with the amount of gorgeousness that I, I viewed. Um, so I, as a me, I, I don't care. It looks great. Thrilled to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not disagree with any of it. I would only build on that and say that what struck me about the color scheme is just um, kind of these use of pastels, you know, colors like turquoise uh, in Hideko's room and, and some of these like pink dresses she wears that very much feel like if you were to describe the film as painterly, it would be more like watercolors than, you know. I don't know, some other substance um, mm. that just feels to, like it kind of evokes um, 
the fiction that these people are kind of playing with. Um, That's interesting because in manipulation of each other. It seems like an oil painting film mm. to me. Like just as a film, it, it looking at it, it feels very oil painting-y, You know, mm-hmm. yeah. But I, I guess the colors you're saying are a little bit more, you know, expressive and, and loud and and florid. Yeah, they they, they definitely pop. Um, you know, this doesn't feel like a dusty 1930s. Uh, this feels very polished and clean. Um, and w- with a sheen that just looks good. It doesn't look false to me, except for when you kind of get this sense that people are playing particular roles. Um, and that, that sense of, you know, fiction being kind of played out before you, um, as characters manipulate each other is kind of fun. Um, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, I don't have too much more with this one other than just rapturous noises about specific things. Do you have anything else you want to get to or do you want to talk about your favorite scene? Only other thing I might say is that even though I haven't read the book, I do think it is exciting to me to see a film take the contents of a book and uh, bring it somewhere new. Um, I think that is a really cool way to do an adaptation um and i think you get this kind of um like cultural cross-pollination from that by taking this narrative tradition that's very you know victorian gothic but getting all the cultural detail of a completely different place is just such a cool um fusion of things that you don't see very often i think that's um a really interesting way to take something pre-existing and make it your own and make it fresh um but um, yeah, I'm good to move on to. I completely agree with that. Um, yeah. I think that that what it does is not only provide like a crisp freshness to something older, but it, it creates a level of resiliency within the piece that that would not be there if it was just one of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I I have no idea what Sarah Waters thought of the movie. I haven't looked that up, but I would have to think she would look at it and say that is a Park Chan Wook movie. Yes, right. <laughs> But she will take all the credit for it. Probably. <laughs> I sure will. All right. Favorite scene? Uh, it's pretty specific. I think one of the, f- I think the first time we see Hideko actually reading a novel in part two is when she's reading the story and she's describing like a wintry scene and those doors open up behind her. Mm-hmm. I love that touch. But I also just think watching her read that scene is when you finally, and you're watching her read that in, with such commitment and she's so completely unembarrassed about it. And it just so contradicts the, the, the innocence that she has carried for the whole movie. And that she um, visually expresses yeah, in that yeah. scene. Um, the, the, the total lack of embarrassment in, in her voice as she reads the story and the look on the Count's face as he realizes, I gotta rethink my plan is very satisfying. Um, I think that's my favorite scene. What about you? Well, my favorite scene is the tree scene, but to give a a slight caveat, like my favorite still scene, I honestly don't remember when it happened. I just remember it and it is inside of one of the very ornate, beautifully decorated rooms. And both women are together, embracing each other um, to the right of the camera. And you can't see them. What you can see is them in a beautifully ornate mirror. 
reflecting mm. that embrace on the most painterly looking decorative wall ever. And it's just looking, it looks like you're looking at a beautiful painting in a single image. And that's one of the images in the film that if I could just print it, I'd print it and put it on my wall. That'd be the one. Yep. Love it. All right. We will be back with rescreening with Angelina Jolie's By the Sea. Now you don't. That's another one in the can.